You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. Hello, hello. As I do every day, I will wish you a good morning if you are in my part of the country, in Saskatchewan or any further west, and I will wish you a good afternoon. Or a good late morning, perhaps. I think Winnipeg's maybe an hour ahead of us if you are east of me. So good afternoon, good morning, and well, not good night for anybody here. Thank you for joining us today. As I fill in for Evan this week, Evan is filling in for Lisa Laflamme on the CTV National News Desk. And last night, Evan had an exclusive interview with Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem. Statistics Canada released its latest inflation numbers yesterday. The cost of the most common goods and services, things like gas, cars, food, the imaginary basket of stuff that most of us pay for on a monthly basis, was a whopping 8.1% more expensive in June than at the same time one year ago. 8.1%. That's the biggest yearly change since January 1983, nearly four decades. To put this into perspective... In March of last year, inflation was at 2.2%. And as as Macklem pointed out to Evan last night. There's no way around it. 8.1% inflation is, is painfully high. Yeah, no kidding. Now, remember, we're looking at June's numbers. Because gasoline prices have come down over the last few weeks, thank goodness, the inflation number will likely be going to come down a bit when Stats Canada publishes its July report, but said Macklem. Unfortunately, inflation is probably going to start with a seven for the rest of the year. Uh, It is going to be painfully high. Last week, the Bank of Canada took a big step in raising its policy interest rate by 100 basis points. We are deliberately front-loading our interest rate response. We want to get ahead of this. Uh, The best chance of getting that soft recovery is to front-load the policy response. What does this mean? Well, likely more interest rate hikes to come. Probably something around the top of that 2 to 3% range or or a little bit over and, and doing that pretty quickly. By continuing to raise its key interest rate, of course, the Bank of Canada is prompting your bank to raise your interest rates. That means the cost of your loans, the cost of your mortgages, they'll all go up. The the hope is, though, that if you're paying more for those things, you will be spending less on other things. And as demand goes down, so too should the prices, or at least they shouldn't be increasing so quickly as they have been. Macklem said where interest rates ultimately go will depend on a couple things, how the economy fares and how inflation fares. Getting inflation back to our 2% target is paramount. That 2% target is where inflation has stayed for the past quarter century. Macklem said the Bank of Canada is not projecting a recession, but they are projecting that growth will slow quite a bit. People are going to feel that. There will be uh, some pain. The economy is in excess demand. It is overheated. With pandemic restrictions lifting, people are traveling more. The war in Ukraine has driven gas prices through the roof. You paid 54.6% more for gas in June than you did at the same time last year. That, according to Statistics Canada, demand for passenger vehicles continued to outpace supply as the auto industry continues to experience major supply chain issues. That's nothing new, but it is increasing to this ever-increasing inflation. 
But Macklem does think there's a path to a soft landing, whereas the Bank of Canada can continue to raise interest rates just enough to stop the economy from overheating to the point of a severe downturn. But that path is narrowing. Macklem's message to you? It is not going to stay this high. Inflation is going to come down. Canadians can be assured uh, that inflation will come down. Well, Evan asked the Bank of Canada governor if he made a mistake not raising rates earlier. The Canadian economy has been through a lot in the last couple of years. Deep recession brought on by the pandemic. Now the brutal war in Ukraine. Macklem said every decision has been based on best available information. But it is... It is by increasing the cost of borrowing that we will actually slow spending, slow demand, give the economy a chance to catch up and take some of the steam out of inflation. So how does all of this make you feel? Governor Macklem says it's going to be a painful year, but that it will get better. He's saying that looking back, if if we knew last year everything that we know today, he thinks that yeah, probably they would have begun raising interest rates earlier, but uh, that's obviously not what happened. Coming up after the break, I want to hear from you. And you can give me a call at 1-855-633-1010. Again, 1-855-633-1010. Or you can send me a text message at 71010. This is the biggest inflation yearly change since January 1983, nearly four decades does Tiff Macklem's words, do they do they bring you any sense of comfort at all? The fact that the numbers won't stay that high, that they will come down, but the fact that it will be a painfully high inflation number year in the sevens, the seven digits, like that is that is just absolutely bonkers to me. And I want to know how you are holding up. So again, after the break, 1-855-633-1010, or you can start sending in your text message at 71010. But we've got a lot more on the show that we are going to be discussing. We learned this morning that the Conservative Party of Canada has confirmed there will be a third leadership debate. This is something candidate Jean Charest has been pushing for. Will it make a difference? It seems that all indicators are pointing to Pierre Poiliev becoming the next leader of the Conservative Party. Something else very interesting in the Shrey camp uh, this week is that we're hearing uh, potentially some rumblings of down the road, him forming uh, a center-right coalition. Is the time right for that? What, do you, what have you been thinking about that story? We're going to be speaking with political commentator Scott Reed on this and other big political stories because there have been a lot of them during the past week. That's coming up in the next hour. We will also be speaking today with a Sudbury, Ontario woman, and I sort of alluded to this story yesterday, who says that her Jamaican husband has been turned down for Canadian residency, and they're appealing immigration officials' decisions. But in the meantime, it's a very real possibility that her husband will miss their child's birth in October. She says that this has uh, this whole immigration uh, process has turned her pregnancy into a negative experience. The fact that somebody will be missing when their baby is brought into the world in October. Uh, yesterday, I shared some of the stories that uh, I've heard over the years from people who have been through the immigration process. I, I remember uh, somebody I know who was sponsoring her common law partner. I think they were together for about 10 years at this point. It might've been a little bit less, uh, but they were living together for several years, no less. She was trying to sponsor him 
And they went in for an interview and, and, you know, the person interviewing them was asking them, you know, asking one partner, what color are the walls of your kitchen? And he's like, I don't know what gray, yellow, orange. I don't know how, how many people can name the color of a specific room. I know I can, because we just painted, but I know, uh, my husband might not be able to do as well with things like, you know, the bedroom or the kid's room or something like that. They were also asked, what did your partner have for breakfast this morning? I don't even remember what I had for breakfast, uh, this morning. Uh, let alone, you know, what my my partner had for breakfast this morning. We're going to be getting into that a little bit later on this hour. And then in the next hour, uh, a conversation that I am really, really looking forward to with gender justice advocate Farah Khan. Um, this is a woman who I greatly admire, and she's done some excellent work in this field. Well, we've been hearing a lot about Hockey Canada lately, and for all the reasons that they don't want us to be hearing about them, of course. Uh, well, Farah Khan thinks that we're missing a big piece of the conversation and one that could lead to the sort of allegations we've been hearing out of Hockey Canada uh, to preventing that from happening again. So we're going to be diving into that conversation in the next hour and taking your calls on it. So I'm really looking forward to that. But of course, first, after the break, again, I want to hear from you. Inflation is breaking records. the biggest yearly change since January 1983. How are you feeling? Tiff Macklin was on CTV National News last night with Evan Solomon saying that, uh, yeah, he he gets it, how people think that this might be a bit counterintuitive, that they're going to be paying more for their their mortgages when they're also paying more for groceries. But uh, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? Do you take any comfort in his words that the numbers will come down? I'm Tamara Cherry, in for Evan Solomon, taking your calls after the break at 1-855-633-1010. Thanks for listening. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, thanks for joining us today. I look forward to getting to your calls very, very soon. You can give us a call at 1-855-633-1010. Text us at 71010. Lots of text messages coming in. Question I'm asking, how are you feeling after Bank of Governor Tiff Macklem's declaration last night with Evan Solomon on CTV National News that the inflation rate will remain painfully high for the rest of the year. Is that a tough pill to swallow? What about the fact that he says that even though we are at 8.1%, which is uh, the biggest inflation increase in nearly four decades since January, 1983. um, Do you take any comfort in the fact that uh, Tiff Macklem says it's not going to stay this way forever. It's, it's going to get better. And uh, we should just sort of trust that that they they know what they're doing over there at the Bank of Canada. Give me a call, 1-855-633-1010. Tiff Macklem said that he also wants you to know that he gets it. This all seems counterintuitive, raising interest rates while you are paying more for all of your everyday items. But it is... It is by increasing the cost of borrowing that we will actually slow spending, slow demand, give the economy a chance to catch up and take some of the steam out of inflation. Macklin's message to Canadians? It is not going to stay this high. Inflation is going to come down. Canadians can be assured uh, that inflation will come down. 
So how are you feeling today on your variable rate mortgage? Are you feeling assured? Are you feeling assured that this will come down? Do you feel that you'll be able to get through the next year or whatever it is that we're looking at with this these crazy high numbers? Tiff Macklin did point out that we saw the, the inflation numbers that we're looking at, they reflect the prices that we had in June. Now, of course, since then, the price of gasoline has thankfully come down a bit. And that will, of course, likely reflect uh, uh, the inflation numbers coming down when Statistics Canada brings out their July numbers next month, but just a bit. He is expecting inflation to be 7% something or 7 point something for the rest of the year. And that is indeed painfully high. Michael, you're calling for Montreal. Uh, what What are you feeling after Tiff Macklem's comments last night? completely confused. If Canada's energy self-sufficient and food self-sufficient, why does fuel have to skyrocket and inflate the price of all goods and services brought to market? Therefore, by escalating interest rates, please explain to me how that will bring down the price of gas, the primary cause of inflation. Well, Certainly, the price of gasoline has played a big role in the inflation increase on a year-over-year basis. This, sorry, yeah, absolutely, the biggest, especially this this uh, past month. Well, this past year, really, Statistics Canada and their report that came out yesterday, they said that on a year-over-year basis, consumers paid fifty-four point six percent more for gasoline in June, following a forty-eight percent increase in May, and that, of course, contributing to the most uh, headline consumer inflation. So, I mean, you raise an excellent point, Michael. Um, I would hope that the government... Go ahead. There was one more flip to this. Um, Trudeau has spent over a trillion and is now telling us to contain our spending. And it's affecting everybody, especially those on fixed incomes. I'm questioning if the credit rating agencies are telling the Bank of Canada, you better raise interest rates or we will downgrade your credit and raise them for you. I wonder. But there are also there are also many other factors at play coming out of the pandemic. The uh, there's been a huge upswing in travel. People are wanting to travel. That also plays into uh, the you know the basket of goods that the Bank of Canada measures, Statistics Canada measures when it is um, looking at inflation. We've also got this sustained uh, supply chain issues in the auto industry. That's been a problem throughout the pandemic, and consumer demand remains high for for auto manufacturing. Thank you very much, Michael, for your call uh, in Montreal. Debo, you're calling from Toronto. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling fine. I'm doing good. How are you doing, Tamara? Doing well. Thanks for asking. Okay, Tamara, my contribution is this. Bank of Canada is looking at the internal control system of the monetary aspect. They're not looking at the external one. There are too much influx of foreign into Canada. People are bringing money from outside Canada, and they are the one driving the inflation up. They are making things to go up, go into the housing section. These people are the ones bringing money, buying houses. So it's not those primarily living in Canada. And that makes it worse for people living in Canada because they cannot afford the house again. Thank you. Are you but, uh, Debor, are you suggesting that this is happening more since the pandemic sort of I don't want to say it's winding down. It's still very much uh, with us. But as travel sort of was ramping up more, I I mean, foreign investors in in Canadian real estate is nothing new. But there are certainly a lot more people traveling into Canada now than they were two years ago and one year ago. 
Yes, this, uh, this situation has been ongoing prior to COVID. And the, the, the Bank of Canada never used its tools to actually track this and control it. When bringing money to Canada is good for everyone. But at the same time, the people who are living in Canada are going to have more problems. Just like we have in a Things are going up. Who is going to afford it? Debo, your your line's sort of cutting out a little bit there. Uh, I'm going to thank you for your call and and for your contributions. That's Debo in Toronto. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's an an interesting point. More people are coming into the the country just as more people are leaving this country in their travels right now. Uh, Is that driving up the numbers? Certainly more people are spending money that way. Uh, What do you think? 1-855-633-1010. Are you going to be cutting back on your spending? Uh, Maybe because you need to? Or maybe you're thinking, I'm going to cut back on my spending just to to try to help bring down these inflation numbers, to try to help drive down the cost of that basket of goods. Lots of text messages coming in. Uh, Somebody uh, texting, I'm not sure from where, but that primary home mortgages and rent should not be affected by higher interest. People need a place to live. We are strapped by all the other increases. Uh, I, I wonder what the percentage is. I'm sure I could find this number somewhere. I wonder what the percentage is of home mortgages that are primary home mortgages versus secondary homes or investment properties. That's certainly a very interesting consideration. Angela texting in. Tamara, do you think Macklin is feeling the same pain that everyday Canadians are? I think not. We're now paying for their miscalculations. Same goes for PM. Prime Minister and Cabinet because we are paying their tab. Another text message coming in. How does Tiff even still have a job? Things are going to be painful. What's his salary? I'm sure he, along with all the rich decision makers, will be fine while many households have to skip meals. So tired of their inaction and the rewards they will all get at the same time. Jim, you're calling from Oakville. How are you feeling today? I'm kind of worried about this guy. I really don't think he's really being straight with us. I'm old enough to remember 40 years ago, and when we had to raise the the interest rate then, and it went up to like 19, 20%, we had to do it because we were told, and I believe them, that if we didn't, our dollar would be basically worthless. It would fall to 40 cents, 50 cents, somewhere in that range, and the higher interest rate meant that our bonds were more attractive. He's not talking about any of that. And I mean, it did work back in, you know, Reagan's years. I really think if he's using gas as a predictor that inflation will go down, he's kind of clued out. But he said a bit. It'll bring it down a bit. I think the point he was making there was you're going to see inflation rate dip a little bit. Uh, when the next numbers come out in August, but we shouldn't take that as an indicator that we're in a much better place because we should expect these painfully high numbers for the rest of the year. Yeah, well, he's predicting 7% based on the price of gas primarily. And I was listening to one of the American networks the other day, and they were saying that $300 a barrel gasoline is, or $300 a barrel oil is entirely possible because we don't know what's going to happen with Russia and Europe in the fall. Mm. 
So painful stuff, Jim. I, I've got it. I've got it ended there just because we're coming up against the break. I'm sure we could talk for hours on this. I thank you all for your calls and texts. Speaking of the price of gasoline and the price of travel that has been going up, uh, lots of problems happening at airports and with airlines lately. We are going to speak with a union leader about what employees are facing at airports, and it is not good. I'm Tamara Cherry, in for Evan Solomon. back to the Evan Solomon show today with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio talk network. It was nearly one month ago, as you loyal listener, listeners may recall that Kevin King, the national president of the union representing employees at passport offices joined the Evan Solomon show and told Evan that workers were being spat on, threatened and harassed. They've been psychologically harassed. They've been photographed. Stuff's been showing up on TikTok, social media, swarmed from their vehicles to and from their offices, and including to and from mass transit. Incredible. This is this is some of the behavior we've seen from fed up fed up customers of Passport Canada, and it is of course not acceptable. But the same can be said for the airline industry. My former journalism colleague in Toronto, Siobhan Morris, tweeted out the following this morning. So my bag has now been missing for 32 days. I asked Air Canada for a refund of my baggage fee. They're offering a voucher. If I want money back, the wait is 8 to 12 weeks. But while Siobhan took her frustrations to Twitter, other airline passengers are taking their frustrations several steps further. Canadian press reporter Christopher Reynolds reported these words from an Air Canada customer service agent in Halifax. I've had customers poke me in the chest and say, you're not going to get me off of this flight. I've seen my colleagues in tears walking away because they just can't deal with another person yelling at them today. Here's what Dominic Doust, a pilot, told CTV News at the beginning of this month. You can definitely feel the the pressure. Our flight attendants are the ones that have to kind of take this pressure from the passengers. And I do not envy them one bit. Joining us now to discuss the harassment airline employees are facing is Leslie Dias, Director of Airlines at Unifor, which represents 16,000 air transport workers, including 5,600 customer service and sales agents at Air Canada. I should also mention that this union also represents more than 700 WestJet employees at airports in Calgary and Vancouver who say they have voted to support a strike if they cannot reach a new contract with the airline. And this strike could have them walking off the job as early as July 27th. So, uh, Leslie Dias, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, have you have you flown anywhere recently, Leslie? Uh, absolutely, I actually have one hundred and eighty thousand miles flown so far this year. I'm on an oh my gosh uh, weekly, several times a week. So absolutely, uh, I've been flying a lot, and I've seen a lot for myself. Um, so, so what has your experience I- been? What have you seen, Leslie? Well, the you know there's there are tremendous lineups. Uh, without a doubt, there, there's, um, you know, just a mass uh, quantity of people. But there's also lineups at, at unfortunate places, lineups at customer service desks where, uh, 
our passengers go when their flights have been delayed or canceled. Um, lineups at uh, baggage service uh, desks where people can't find their luggage. Um, you know, obviously there was lines at security, although my experience with security in the last, I would say, a month has been extraordinarily good. Um, hmm. The lineups at going to customs and immigration, like there's, there's a line everywhere. So I, I, I take that to mean that you can understand why travelers are frustrated. Well, absolutely. And, and really, the issue is that um, there is there's not enough staff. Like, yes, there's a tremendous amount of disruption going on, and that is rooted in a variety of, uh, of areas, you know, from air traffic control. Um, but really, uh, it, it's, a, it's about having enough staff to run operations. So, so I, I want to I want to get in I want to get into the 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 staffing numbers in a second, Leslie. But first, can you just share with us what sorts of stories you're hearing from staff on the front lines, what they're experiencing? Sure. Um, so the unfortunately the uh, the the frustration they're the front line, so the frustration is being taken out on them. So when there's um, Delays, cancellations, and so on, uh, they are the ones that have to deal with the fallout of that. And when by somebody, it's bad enough when your flight gets canceled, but it's uh, that much worse when you have to stand in a line for three hours to talk to somebody who might be able to only tell you that they can't get you on a flight for two days. So you can imagine that those conversations don't go very well. People are extremely frustrated. We have had, I mean, yelling uh, and raised voices is not just a daily occurrence, it's an hourly occurrence. I don't know of a single airport employee who hasn't um, been experiencing that uh, all day, every day. Uh, but it's also, um, you know, some people go too far. It, not to say that, that raise voices isn't too far, but we have had uh, a women, uh, there's a couple of incidents that have happened in Western Canada where a woman's been working alone, confronted by four men at 1 a.m. that are angry about the fact that they can't find their bags. Um, we've had uh, agents that have to run behind a desk and go behind a closed door because they physically feel threatened. Mm-hmm. Police are called on a regular basis to stand beside counters to de- um, de- uh, to, to come to try and you know present a front that um, behavior is not acceptable. They call for help from management that doesn't arrive. Um, so they're really dealing with extraordinarily difficult situations. Um, there, if you know, it's almost a form of. Uh, I, I liken it to some extent to a war zone. Uh, meetings we've had with these people lately, they come in. You know, their eyes are sunken, they're exhausted. They come in to work for four or six hours and they end up staying for sixteen hours. And what do they get all day? Uh, a, a lot of dealing with a lot of difficult situations. And it's not that they don't have compassion for the customer. They absolutely do. But your options are limited. And when you're there by yourself and you're, you know, you don't have colleagues to help you deal with the the problems or you don't have management to come and help you deal with it, you're absorbing a great deal on your own. 
but I do want to say talk to me about the impact though on that Leslie like what what impact is this having on your your members mental health physical health even there is I I mean I'm dealing a lot with WestJet right now clearly because we have the strike Mm -hmm. deadline we met with uh, our members uh, just uh, in the last uh, five days Um, there's there's a lot of people quitting um, there's a lot of people who simply can't go to work another day. They're crying. They're they're breaking down. I, I've I've honestly never seen it like this before. And the acknowledgement from the employers of what the people are actually going through seems to be non-existent. Um, they just they've reached a breaking point. It's um, you know I mean we just I just came from a meeting with our conciliator and. Uh, the the stories that are being told and, and being expressed about how you know they're on they're they're crying they're on the verge of tears all the time um it's not sustainable i mean obviously there'll be people that will reach out to uh you know substance abuse and so on it's just you can't they just can't take it anymore <laughs> that mm. that's where it's at it's just too much Leslie, we, we've only got like less than a minute left. Just very quickly, I wanted to touch on the staffing issues because surely this the, the bad situation for our frontline staff must not be encouraging more people to sign up for this job. So how do we solve this? If you can just say it in 20 seconds. The fastest way to solve the, the staffing issue is to pay people more. When you want to pay people minimum wage to work crazy hours and take that level of abuse, you're simply going to be unsuccessful in hiring and retaining workers. That's the bottom line. You can go work at Tim Hortons and get paid better and get more benefits than you do at some of these jobs. I would love so much to continue this conversation, uh, but we're just running out of time. Leslie Dias, thanks so much for taking the time. Leslie, of course, is the director of airlines at Unifor, which represents 16,000 air transport workers, including 5,600 customer service and sales agents at Air Canada. And of course, all those WestJet employees that could potentially be walking off the job in uh, the next six days or so. Uh, Please keep all of her comments in mind next time you're at the airport and feeling frustrated. I'm Tamara Cherry. We have a lot more coming up after the break on the Evan Sullivan Show. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. As I said yesterday on the show, I have been through Canada's immigration system with my husband. Sponsored him many years ago as a common law partner. It was not easy, but it was not nearly as hard as many people that I know who have gone through this very same process, sponsoring their partners who they have been with for several years. I remember one friend who was sponsoring her her common law spouse at the time had presented transcripts showing thousands of text messages back and forth between her and her partner to prove that their relationship was legitimate and the immigration officer still didn't believe it. Well, eventually she ended up sponsoring him. They've now got two or three kids together living out on the East Coast. But I've got so many stories like that. And and this next one is is another one. Sudbury, Ontario woman, Ariella Ladusur, says that her Jamaican husband has been turned down for Canadian residency. And while they're appealing immigration officials' decision, she's very pregnant. 
and having a baby in October. And it's looking very likely that her husband, who she married in October 2020, who she met two years before that while working for the same airline, that he will not be able to come to Canada for the birth of their child. Ariella Ladusur joins us on the line now. Ariella, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. So tell us about your immigration journey. Um, Well, we applied last July, so July 2021. It was a slow process. Like It did take a while for certain things to go through. When I found out I was pregnant, I got a little worried because we hadn't heard anything in months. Um, So I did reach out to my MP, and she told me where exactly we were, like what they they were working on at that time. And then in May, we received notification we had an interview in Kingston. Mm-hmm. On Kingston, June Jamaica. Yes, correct. Yes, okay. And I decided to go down to be a, a, a support for my husband and then also to also be a voice for the baby. Um, so I flew down for the interview and the moment, like my husband went in first and the moment he stepped out, I could tell right away it was not going good because his mood, he's such a happy, positive person. His mm-hmm. mood was just so sour. And when I sat down, the agent right away said, do you know why you're here? And I said, well, I'm assuming you have some questions regarding our application. And he told me, well, we have so many Jamaican men that have children with another woman. They marry a Canadian, go to Canada, divorce the Canadian, and then bring over the mom. And I was a bit taken aback because I didn't think he would start off with such a, a bias. Hmm. towards us just because my husband has kids from another woman. I mean, there's plenty of people who have blended families in the world. It's not an uncommon thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that it was, it was the bias that this immigration officer went in with? Was it completely biased or was there something that you think might've been misconstrued in the conversation about your relationship in particular? I think it was a bias because I remember after we walked out, I felt like he made up his mind before we even got in there. Mm. That this was just a formality they had, you know, to do. Mm-hmm. Because just, we had passed just to all put, the other sorry, steps. go ahead. Because we had passed all the other steps, right? Like I didn't get turned down as a sponsor. He passed his medical, like everything on that end was okay. You just had to do the interview. Mm-hmm. And then... Because even though we took the bus back to Montego Bay from Kingston and even the whole bus ride, like, we just, we both were, like, we were balloons that got deflated. Mm. Did the immigration officer tell you at that time that that you weren't going to be accepted? Or did you just have such a negative feeling leaving that that you just knew what was going to happen? We just had such a negative feeling, both of us. And then we we called our immigration consultant that night and talked to her about it. She wasn't, she wasn't too impressed that they didn't interview us together. They, that we had to be interviewed separately. Hmm. And then, and then it was about two days later, we got the, she got the email that we were not approved. Hmm. And how did that feel? It was like, I went into shock and I actually, the lady that we rent from in Jamaica, she had to come over. My husband was still getting home from work at that time. She had to come over and take care of me because I was not doing too good. Mm. And how many weeks and pregnant are you now, Ariella? I'm 27 weeks. 
Wow. Congratulations, but I'm sorry that you're going through this. We're speaking with Ariella Ladusur, a woman in Sudbury, uh, who says that her Jamaican husband has been turned down for Canadian residency and he could miss their child's birth in October. Now, just to add some context to this for our listeners, uh, I'm reading from a, a CBC story now regarding immigration, refugees, and citizenship Canada and the information that they provided to the CBC. Um, a spokesperson for the department said the government of Canada recognizes that the the majority of relationships are genuine and that most applications are made in good faith. However, to protect the integrity of our immigration system, officers must do their due diligence to determine whether a marriage is genuine. Further, uh, last year, the department approved six more than 67,000 applications for permanent residency under the spousal and partners category and refused uh, over 3,000. So the refusal rate was 4.7%. And, and obviously this year, uh, Ariella, uh, Ariella, sorry, you're, you and your, your husband uh, have fallen into this category. And as I said at the beginning of the segment, I know many other people who have had very legitimate relationships who have also fallen into this category. So what comes next for you guys? I know, I know you're appealing it, but what, what's that mm-hmm. process and what could the timeline look like? Well, I'm, I'm hoping that they send our file over quickly and then we can get the appeal date. But then after that, it has to, they have to reopen his file and they have to start. He'll have to, like his medical expires in November and his police background expired April. So those likely will have to be redone. So it could be another mm. six months from if we win the appeal, him actually getting here. Mm. And so and I suppose look- that they, they likely wouldn't be um, approving a visitor visa, visa for him to be coming right now, given that he he's just uh, had an unsuccessful immigration attempt. Mm-hmm. No, they usually, what from what I've read, spousal, when they do deny the spousal sponsorship, they won't approve the tourists. And also Jamaica has a very high rate of tourists these is getting declined because hmm. they don't believe right. that once they, they come visit that they'll leave the country. Oh, well, Ariel, I'm, I'm very sorry that you are going through this. Is, is there any other message you would like to get across to immigration, refugees and citizenship Canada? Just, we have just less than a minute left. I just wish that they would put themselves in my shoes because I'm sure many of them who have had children have had their partner there or their spouse and to go through this alone is not is not a fun thing because there are things that can go wrong in labor and I need my husband here and I just wish that they would think of my unborn son. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. Well, Ariella, I wish you and your husband the best of luck uh, in this process. I thank you for taking the time. And of course, please remain in touch if, if there are any updates that, that you can share with us. That's Ariella Ladusur. She is from Sudbury. Her husband is in Jamaica. He was recently turned down for Canadian permanent residency. Uh, Ariella had been sponsoring him under the common law spouse section, spouse and common law partner section. Um, and uh, they were denied. So she could be having their baby without him come on, uh, come October. I am Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. It is Thursday. That means that we've got lots of great commentary coming up from Scott Reed, political commentator after the break. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
And this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. And as I said before the break, it is Thursday, and that, of course, means we have some excellent political commentary coming your way because it is time for Overhyped and Underplayed. Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunities. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or Underplayed. Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin joins us now to break down his commentary on some of the biggest political stories of the week. Scott, how are you doing? Just great. Just great. Um, you know, I love nothing more than 40 degree weather. I like to, you know, <laughs> but as, a, as a man of, let's say, ample size, I'm, I find I'm extremely sensitive to uh, temperature change until we hit 31 degrees. And after that, it's just it's all over. I just give it's up. It's just like, all I'm bad. Just a, I'm, I'm just an unrung rag. So, are you just sit, sitting next to the air conditioner right now, Scott? Well, it's the old, uh, it's the old Ed McMahon joke, you know. I, uh, I sit in my boxers with the fridge door open <laughs> until the, uh, until the sales staff at Sears ask me to leave. There's, there's so many listeners out there that are very grateful for that visual that you just gave them right now, Scott. I'm not one of them, but um, I appreciate it <laughs> no less. Okay, so let's jump into this. I want to start talking, uh, start out talking about Jean Charest. Uh, There's a couple of interesting things. First of all, this morning we're learning from the Conservative Party of Canada that there will be a third leadership debate. This is something, of course, that Sheree has been uh, gunning for. And and also some talk early over in the recent days about potentially down the road, uh, Sheree creating a coalition, a a center-right coalition, whether it's time for that. So what do you think these issues, overhyped, underplayed? What is it? How could they be hyped? Much less overhyped. These, like, so first of all, let's take them in in, in sequence. The the debate. Okay, fine. Have a debate. I mean, like, there's no harm in having debate. Um, but this race is over. Ballots are being mailed in. Memberships are sealed up. Uh, and anybody who hasn't actually, like, you know, looked through the chicken bones or tea leaves, uh, let me give you a little uh, future news here. Pierre Polyev wins. Okay, Jean Charest not going to win. Patrick mm-hmm. Brown dropping out only makes it harder for Charest, not easier, not better for Charest. So. This thing is over. Have your debate. Whatever. No one will care. It will affect very little. As for Sheree forming his own party, like, come on. Come on. Do you really? know how A? Yes, it's a ridiculous notion. There is no such possibility. Um, first of all, he's not going to do it. I would think that after the drubbing he's taken during this race, he would be like, you know what? I want to retire and have people remember me as I was, not as I have been throughout this race and the result. And finally, like, why? Like, you can't succeed in launching your own party unless you have a genuine movement behind you. There's no movement going on right now. We are now facing a pitched battle between Pierre Polyev. And the forces that oppose Pierre Polyev. That's how this election's going to come down. There's going to be a referendum on whether or not we're going to permit this kind of politics to uh, proceed. And uh, I, for one, am suiting up heavily. So there aren't going to be third, fourth options in this race. It's bad news for the NDP, much less for somebody who thinks, oh, I'm going to start my own party. Not happening. You you don't think that there's going to be conservative voters that are are wanting another option other than um, the far right politics that Poiliev is is playing. I know that you would love for everybody to go to Team Liberal, but you, you don't think that there's going to be people shouting from the rooftops for something different. 
No, I, I've had this argument over and over and over again. I've had it with Evan. I've had it with anybody who will stand still, right? And, you know, this notion that there's a battle going on, that there's some grand uh, contest for the soul of the Conservative Party, um, people aren't paying attention. That battle was waged and lost by centrist conservatives. Like, it's not, there is no such thing as a red Tory. Yeah, you'll find some people out there who go, well, I don't know that I feel like I have a home now. But, like, the Conservative Party wants Pierre Polyev. It wants this brand of politics. It has jumped in with both boots. It is the convoy party. It is the party of anti-vax. Like, that's where it's at. Those are the choices it's made. That is what it wants to be. And so now there's one choice. Are we going to allow that kind of politics to succeed? Because if it does, it'll get copied. And it's an and it's an awful brand of politics. So that's that's the reality of it. Will those people, will there be people who are disaffected? Of course, there always is. But, you know, the, the Conservative Party isn't going, oh, my God, we're so div- divided and riven. They're not. If they were, this would be a contest, and it isn't. It's a beating. I, I don't consider myself aligned as much as people on the text board would just agree with this, calling me a commie day in, day out, all that. I don't consider myself aligned with any particular political party in Canada, but I just find it hard to believe that Pierre Poilievre's politics are in line with most conservatives in the country. You really think that's the truth? (laughs) Who cares what I think? The evidence Well, well, that's why we have you here. Come on. Lots of people care about what you think, Scott. I mean, seriously, like, I, I mean, people want... People like this is like an archaeologist who refuses to believe uh, that the pyramids were, were were built. I mean, come on. The guy sold 500,000 memberships or whatever it is. There's an overwhelming endorsement of him from caucus members. There are massive, enthusiastic crowds wherever he goes. This is what conservatives and those who they are recruiting, you know, into their coalition want. This is for sure what they want. Now, not of course, you can't make a universal statement. There are people who will support Sheree. There will be people who will be disaffected. Many of my old friends who are red Tories um, don't like this, but like this is what the Conservative Party wants. And the evidence is indisputable. I thought you said red Tories don't exist. They, they don't exist as a functioning unit any longer. You right. know, they sort of sit around the Toronto Club and Albany Club and, you know, drink beer and moan about, you know, Bob <laughs> Stan- you know like, like, they, they complain about Bob Stanfield never having, uh, you know, a real shot in 1972. Like it's it's over, man. It's uh, lights out. Sorry. Like that's it. OK, what about what about city councillors? Uh, is it over for city councillors in Toronto and Ottawa and them having a proper say? Doug Ford giving more powers to these mayors uh, by the sounds of it in the weeks to come, wanting to make the strong mayor system. Uh, what do you make of of the coverage we've had of this over the last? What is it just 24 hours, 36 hours, something like that? Overhyped, underplayed? Yeah. I, uh- I think it's still probably underplayed as a story in certain terms of its importance. Personally, I come down in favor of a strong mayor system and there Mm -hmm. are merits and demerits. The reason I say it's underplayed is that it's an important and valuable debate. Like it's a debate worth engaging in because there are major consequences and implications when you change the governance model of a place as large and as living in is Toronto. I mean, it's the engine of Ontario. Ontario is the economic engine of Canada. Like, this is not an unimportant thing. I also think some of those arguments make the case for why you ought to have a different governance structure. But, you know, it's a debate that ought to happen. And so, you know, I hope that when Ford brings forward the legislation, there will be hearings, there will be an argument, there will be, you know, I hope it isn't just like pencil whipped through, because I do think it's a debate worth occurring. Um, but if I'm going to be honest, uh, I vote in favor of a strong mayor system, because I mm-hmm. think that it makes no sense 
nice to me to elect a mayor citywide who only has the effective powers of a, of a lone councillor and who spends his whole time, therefore, looking for a lowest common denominator consensus, which means that you are going to get weak tea, even if what you need is the strong green stuff. Hmm. Uh, Scott, there's one more I want to get your take on here because we just have a minute left. But the turbine issue, I mean, that's just a story that won't wouldn't go away for uh, our prime minister. Do you think that it's been overhyped or underplayed when it comes to how the media has been covering the uh, the fact that the Russian the Russian you know state led gas provider has said, oh, maybe we won't be speeding up our our gas to European nations anytime soon, even though the government of Canada has has overturned or made this exemption um, in in their sanctions. I I think the story um, is is overhyped in this respect. I think that people, um, close observers of politics, are being too breathless. And I'm heavily influenced by my background. I worked for a prime minister. I worked for a couple prime ministers. And I've worked in premier's offices. And I've seen the kind of compromises you have to make. Massive pressure from Germany. Massive pressure for European partners saying, listen, if you don't do this, we're going to end up in a situation where the front will uh, disassemble. We'll end up having to buckle and take Russian oil. Massive pressure from the White House. So, you know, in contrast to the rhetoric, we'll do anything to stand with Ukraine. This looks bad. But, you know, these are unfortunately the kinds of geopolitical decisions you're sometimes forced to make. It's not a moral foreign policy. It's a strategic foreign policy. And it's ugly when you have to make those choices and defend them. Mm, Yeah. Thanks for your take on that and all the other issues, Scott. Scott Reed sitting in his boxers next to an open refrigerator, but taking the time to talk with us today. CTV National or CTV News political commentator, former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. Coming up after the break, we've got a conversation about Hockey Canada and all the never ending stories that we've been talking about and hearing about lately that you won't want to miss. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan. is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is a story that, uh, this next topic is a story that I've been paying close attention to, as have many Canadians from coast to coast, and dare I say, uh, many people outside of Canada. It is one that has to do with Hockey Canada, that has to do with hockey culture, that has to do with sexual assault allegations, that has to do with a multi-million dollar lawsuit that was very quietly settled. It's been a story that has been difficult to ignore over the past month in particular. We've been hearing a lot about Hockey Canada, not the sort of stuff that, of course, they would like us to hear about, but the stories have just kept on coming, largely from the Globe and Mail, which has done incredible work on this topic. It all started with a lawsuit that Hockey Canada quietly settled in May following allegations that a woman was assaulted by members of the country's 2018 gold medal winning world junior hockey team at a gala and golf function. The woman was seeking $3.55 million in damages from Hockey Canada, the Canadian Hockey League, and the unnamed players. Details of the settlement have not been made public. Well, this week we learned from the Globe and Mail 
which again has produced an incredible body of work in their ongoing investigation into this story, that Hockey Canada keeps a special multi-million dollar fund fed by registration fees of players across the country that it uses to pay out settlements in cases of alleged sexual assault without its insurance company and with minimal outside scrutiny. The Reserve Fund, the Globe reports, has exceeded $15 million in recent years. Since that bombshell report, Hockey Canada has announced it is halting use of the Special Reserve Fund to settle these claims, and London police have said they are reopening their investigation into the alleged assault. As I said, this story is not going away, but our next guest thinks we are missing a big part of the conversation. Farah Khan is a gender justice advocate and the founder and CEO of Possibility Seed, which is a social change consultancy dedicated to equity and gender justice and it leads a national project called Courage to Act, which addresses gender-based violence on campuses. And Karafan joins Oh my gosh, Karafan. Farah Khan joins us now. Farah, thanks so much for taking the time today. Hi, so excited to be here. So what are we missing in this conversation? I think we're missing so much. Well, one thing is we're missing that there was a survivor, and there still is a survivor that has said that they were sexually assaulted by a number of men. And I think about her. I think about, you know, I think about her. I think about what she's gone through, what challenges are already facing her now as we move forward with this. So I think about her. Another thing we're missing is that this is not about a bunch of bad apples. Because oftentimes we treat it like, oh, well, we'll just deal with these young men and then we'll be okay. No, this is a culture that allows for and elevates people, specifically young men, and say, you know what, it's okay, boys will be boys, or you know what, it's not a big deal, or let's cover this up, because that's Mm -hmm. a big thing. So we're not teaching young men about how to be accountable. We're not teaching young men about dealing with violence. What we've taught them really is how to cover it up. And so the focus should really be on the institutional failures to not only protect this young woman, but also to protect these young men. Because we set up young men to fail when we don't give them the right information. What have you heard uh, or read in this case? Because there's been so much to come out, especially over the last few days, that has made you think about that culture, that culture of, you know, cover up instead of accountability and, and that message that it sends to hockey players, to young men. I think reading over the text messages that were leaked to the media, and I, I don't know about you, but when I read them, they, they haunted me. One specific one, you know, these were between the player and the, the complainant, and a player was texting her after the, inc- the harm, and he said, you know, can, can you please figure out how to make this go away and contact the police? And he texted her a few times every hour to check whether she had done this. And this was after she had reported to the, like, spoken to her mom and let people know what would happen. And it wasn't about, are you okay? It wasn't if, you know, how she's doing. It was about, how do we make this go away? And also the threat that this would cause in another text, you know, the threat of, well, this is going to have deep impacts on everyone, including you. And this is the thing. We put survivors on trial. We put women on trial all the time. It's like, we as a society say that sexual assault is really bad. We as a society say that we should not have sexual assault happen. Yet when we're faced with people who 
have been impacted by sexual assault, we consistently try to push them down, try to hide it, try to say it's all in their head, that they must have been wrong, they must have been confused. Another thing, too, when I was reading the text messages and that had been shared, another part of it, you know, she had said, you know, she had talked about how, like, it changed for her, like, what happened. So initially, it was something that, you know, she maybe wanted to go home with him or gone to the hotel backstory of the hotel. And then it changed when the other people were there. And so it's like, this is a piece that we also have to remember too, is that, you know, she started feeling humiliated and harmed and made fun of, she said. And I think about the fact that we know from research, it says that when you are sexually assaulted, usually, especially with young women, it's like, yes, the sad is one in five women who are sexually assaulted university age the sexual assault usually occurs after they consented to an, an initial sexual activity. So maybe I said yes to kissing you, or I said yes to going home with you and making out with you or having sex with you, but I didn't consent to those other things. Because the mm-hmm. thing about consent, it's continuous. And what was upsetting too was that video where a clip where, you know, she said it was consensual. Well, what would you do tomorrow if you were in a room with eight hockey players in the middle of the morning and they said to you, make a video, tell us it's consensual. I probably under coercion and under compliance would feel like I had to say something good so that they maybe wouldn't hurt me anymore, that I could get out of Yeah, and, and a lot of people are die. playing that video. So Sorry to cut you off there, Far, but a yeah. lot of people are sort of reporting on that video as, well, this, this could be seen as something that exonerates these men because here she is <laughs> on video saying, yes, it was consensual, like it's just an ordinary thing, but you don't read into it that way. No, not at all. And I think it shows that how little we've taught really about consent because people think consent is a contract. People can think consent is something that, you know, you stamp and it's done. When it's ongoing, it's specific. It's done under, not under duress. And the thing is, is if you're in a room early in the morning and there's eight men in it, how do you give that embodied enthusiastic consent? And you don't do it just because you were having sex with someone else or because you were enjoying yourself on the dance floor before you were having a drink. None of those give consent to six, seven other men having sex with you. You have to do that. And so it shows a lack of people understanding also the nuances of consent and understanding that concept of sexual coercion, the idea that people will pressure and manipulate, emotionally threaten you to get somebody to agree to sexual activity and also to make you quiet, to make mm-hmm. sure that you think that what happened to you wasn't sexual assault, that gaslighting. Yeah. And going back to those text messages uh, that we've mm-hmm. been hearing about from, from the Globe and Mail of you need to make sure that this goes away. And I think that there yeah. was one message along the lines of, you know, this is going to be a bad for a lot of people, including you, yeah. and, which would bring back those feelings of shame, I suppose. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that, Survivors do a tremendous job of already blaming themselves. Mm. The shock of when violence happens. You know, oftentimes when people are subjected to sexual violence, they can have different ways they react to it. And the most common reaction is freeze response, where you're so shocked that this is happening to you, that you're so terrified that you are immobilized. 
So it's Farah, Farah, I, I want to yeah. stop you there. I'm hoping that you yeah. can hold on because we're coming up against the break. Can you stick stick with yeah. us after the break? Yeah. Yes. We're, we're, yeah. we're speaking for anybody joining right now because I, I really want to pick this up. Uh, we're speaking with Farah Khan, founder of Possibility Seeds, about all the important conversations that we have not been having in regards to this these ongoing, never-ending uh, line of stories uh, uh, surrounding Hockey Canada and what happened in uh, a London hotel room. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Sullivan. Stick around. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And joining us on the line, uh, continuing our conversation from before the break, is Farah Khan, a gender justice advocate and the founder and CEO of Possibility Seed, a social change consultancy dedicated to equity and gender justice. Uh, Farah and I are discussing the never-ending Hockey Canada story and some important conversations that Farah has pointed out that we have not been having as we consume this news uh, that that just never seems to stop Farah, does it? Farah, before we get back into where we were, I, I want to point out some text messages that we've been getting on the text board so you can address this because... Yeah. Um, there's some views that are shared that that might sort of upset you, but I think it's important that we address address them. So, for example, um, somebody texting in from London saying, not to be insensitive, this is also a culture of false allegations, which may be partly the reason for this reserve fund. What would you say to uh, this, this listener's assertion that there is a culture of false allegations? So there you're if I have a son, I have four brothers, um, and I think about them when I talk about sexual violence, but I don't think about them being falsely accused. I think of them being sexually assaulted. Young men are more likely to be sexually assaulted than they are to be falsely accused. Yet we create this false narrative to them and with the public that they have more to fear about being falsely accused than being sexually assaulted, which creates a narrative for them that they don't feel like they can tell you when they are sexually assaulted because then maybe you don't feel like a real man or that, well, it must be in my head or it must not be real. And we've seen it with within sport that coaches sexually assaulting students and children and young athletes. We've seen it in hockey with OHL and other hockey leagues um, with initiate, and I say initiation and quote unquote, that are oftentimes hazing rituals that include sexual assault. So I think, you know, it's easy for us to go to a place that this could be false accusations and absolutely people have the right to procedural fairness and people have the right to have a fair process. Absolutely. But when we all jump to that place of false accusations, we need to check ourselves. Why are we so scared to say someone was sexually assaulted when it's an epidemic in this country? Globally, one in six men one in three women, and one in two trans or gender and binary people will be just subjected to sexual violence in their lifetime. That means people you love, people you know, maybe yourself. And so I would hope that anyone listening would be more likely to talk to their sons about sexual assault, that they may be perpetuated against them, or they might witness their peer doing. Like I think about those eight young men that were in that room. Mm-hmm. And I think about, you know, what have we not done to teach them to call in their peer, 
when maybe there was, you know, when I work with young men who've committed sexual assault like that, like gang sexual assault, there's always a couple that said, I didn't know what to do. I thought myself I would be violated if I said something. I didn't want to do it, but I wanted to go along with my peers. I was scared to say no themselves. So we got to talk about that. Hmm. We got to talk about how we call, how men can call on each other. I'm more interested in that conversation. Yes, there's like, I think it's under 2% that is false accusation. So, so let's, tra- let's, yeah. let's pick up on that last point though, uh, Farah, because I should also point out that a, a big part of the work that you do with Possibility Seeds is, is giving training to sports organizations, to hockey organizations right across this country. So what have you noticed about the culture there and, and how that might feed into maybe some of these young men thinking that either this sort of behavior is okay, or if, if I do it, or if I slip down the wrong path, uh, we can make it go away. Well, I do training for sports teams. So all kinds of sports teams. Um, I think a lot of things for young players is that there's not, there's not comprehensive sexual health education in schools. So young men are ill-equipped oftentimes in sexual relationships because they're not provided correct information. Sure. Sometimes they're talked about the mechanics of sex, like, if you do X, you might get someone pregnant, or this is what an STI is, or this is how what birth of a child looks like. But rarely do they get conversations about sexual communication, body autonomy, how to talk to your partner of what you like and what you don't like, what porn literacy is, so that the things you sometimes watch online, the media you consume about sex is actors and people that are getting paid for it. It's not in reality what sex is like. Mm-hmm. And what we know is actually there's a crisis of sexual assault in high schools that no one is dealing with. The focus oftentimes is on university and colleges. So when I meet with these young men, oftentimes they themselves are like, can I give consent? Can I say no? I feel pressured. I don't know how to tell my girlfriend that I don't like this. Or I feel like I have to live up to a sexual stereotype because I'm in this certain sport or I'm from this certain specific community. Or young men themselves don't realize that sexual coercion and pressure what they think is normal dating rituals of like, you know, if I just keep asking her and asking her and pressuring her, she'll say yes. And that's just a part of, you know, the hunt or what I do when really that's actually not okay. Mm-hmm. What you touch on there is so important. And it's something that myself as the mother of two little boys, I worry about, you know, with, with Pornhub and, you know, little boys growing up. Um, searching the internet and and thinking that sexual assault is actually real consensual um, sexual mm-hmm. content. It's it's a very scary thing, but I also really worry about. Um, I, I should point out there's a lot of people sending in text messages saying, you know, this is the, this is the I've never heard somebody speaking so well on this on this issue. This is the best conversation I've heard on this issue. But I'm also getting a lot of people texting in with the not believing her stuff and saying that you're not answering that your guest is not answering the question. She's pulling stats out of thin air. Of course, I know that you're informed on this Farah. Of course, you know, you are. And I'm sure you don't take offense to that, but how do we fix that? Because it seems that there's some Mm -hmm. people that we will just never be able to convince that a, a, a young woman in a hotel room that showed up to perhaps have a sexual encounter with young one man wasn't okay with it when several other young men showed up and, and, Mm -hmm. and joined in. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, we live in a culture that is quicker to say a woman is lying than to believe her. And that speaks to just deep entrenched misogyny. And it's scary for anybody to hear that because 
it, we have to look at our own biases and our own understanding. And it's also terrifying to know that those statistics are from Statistics Canada. They're deeply researched. I don't make up things. It's scary to hear that because you have then we all have to kind of go, oh, yeah, the world is not as safe as I thought it was. That if I just, you know, make sure my daughter doesn't dress a certain way or doesn't drink a certain way, or if my wife walks, I walk my wife to the car and back, then she'll be safe. Or because I've never done that, that means that my friends haven't done that. The sad reality is that it's so common and it's a wallpaper for a lot of women's lives that we experience sexual violence again and again and again. From the ways in which people DM us penis pictures to the way in which someone cat calls me in the street to going on a date that I thought would be really cute to end up being a sexual assault. So I know it's scary for a lot of us to actually deal with this reality, but I will say this, it's institutional failure. This is not about these young men completely. This is about an institutional failure that coaches the industry, the people around them, our school system, our politicians do not take this seriously and think it as a one-off when it's actually an everyday experience. And it's something violent and it's not okay. And until that is taken seriously as the epidemic it is, then we're going to continue to see it happen. We just saw the gymnastics world, just the, you know, gymnastic gymnast just put out a thing about yeah. a seven-year-old child that was sexually assaulted, seven years old. We were having debates in the United States about a 10-year-old girl who was raped and impregnated. Yes. Yeah. You know, we are living in hard times. And so I get it. I get we're scared, but don't be scared. I think we need to be like otters and hold each other's hands in rough waters and not, you know, say, oh, she must be lying. Don't go to that place. Go to a place of what can I do better so that this kind of rot doesn't continue to fester in our country. Farrakhan, I just, uh, I love you to bits. I'm such a fan of your yours and, and the work that you do. Farrakhan is the founder of Possibility Seeds, and she's also a member of the Government of Canada's Federal Strategy Against Gender-Based Violence Advisory Council, and she's the manager of Consent Comes First at Toronto Metropolitan University. But that is really just a short list of all the things that Farrakhan does in the gender justice space. So for all of you people on the text board saying she doesn't know what she's talking about, check yourself. Yes, she does. Farah, thanks so much for your time. What, what an excellent couple of segments. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm Tamir Cherry in for Evan Solomon. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, welcome back to the show. Uh, you know what? Lots of disappointing things on the, the text board, as always. Uh, and this last segment that we were talking about with the Hockey Canada story, stories, never-ending stories, is no exception. But I got to say, a lot of people texting in saying that Farah Khan, our last... Uh, guest was, you know, perhaps the best, the best person they've ever heard speak on this topic. And they're very grateful for the conversation. So again, my thanks to just uh, gender justice advocate Farah Khan for joining us on that very important topic. I am so excited about this next topic. And another very inspiring woman will be joining us in a moment. But first, I want to play for you, have our technical producer, Chris, rather play for you a snippet of the video that a teacher who her name is Stephanie L. That's how we're identifying her. She goes by Teach in the Six online. 
this is a snippet of the video that she posted on Instagram, which has now been seen more than 3.2 million times and has garnered more than 300,000 likes. Hit it, Chris. Because everybody worked super, super hard this year, you're each going to get your own period of care of your closet, and you're going to get to custom design with markers and Uh, Stephanie, that that sound just fills my heart with so much joy. First, thanks for joining us. Tell us what we were listening to there. Thank you for having me. I loved hearing that. Um, so that's me telling the kids the surprise. I had the boxes covered with a tablecloth, and um, one of the students he helped me unveil the shoes and the shoe boxes to the rest of his class. And um, he even didn't have an idea of what was underneath there. And um, that you hear their reactions and their screams, their excitement fill the classroom. So that was that was a little bit of that clip. Yeah. I just love that. And thank you for, thank for sharing you. a little bit more of that moment with us. Stephanie, tell those of us who don't work with kids on a daily basis, how big of a deal are sneakers like these uh, to kids? Oh, they, they, they use them for their everyday essentials. They, they even like with social media, they'll, this is a very, very big deal. And um, I had no idea at the moment, but they're so hard to come by. So adding that on top of it, it was even, even more rare. You, you knew that this would be a big deal for your students, but what, why, why did you do this? Because a lot of teachers, I mean, they do yeah. nice things for their students at the end of the year. Why this? Why now? I just, I'm a big sneaker head myself and um, I, they, they just inspire me on a daily basis. And I know a lot of times people say they're just kids, they're just kids, but that's the one thing I've always told them is you're not just a kid. And if you put your mind to something, you can definitely achieve that. And so I wanted to reward them. I wanted to, you know, thank them as well, because this year was a tough year. And with everything going on with COVID, with all the different, like, as you've heard in Texas, the um, mm-hmm. unimaginable mishaps there and the shooting, that's awful. And with even back in Ukraine, like the refugees and everything going on, it's just it's been a whirlwind of a year for all of us. And I think we can all attest to that. You know, we we need some good. We need some positivity. And the kids, like, they really absorb a lot of all of everything online. And so just doing this, and I knew that this was something that they they liked that personally themselves. So I just, I wanted to do something that mixed some social aspect along with some creativity, with some education base behind it. So we did many little activities to start off. And then that kind of, like, triggered me. And got me thinking, um, and I kind of like wanted to incorporate all those aspects together. Okay, so you you just touched on something though a moment back there. You talked yeah. about how well, difficult it's been for kids with the pandemic, yeah. with the war going it, on in Ukraine. Yeah. There's been so much going on, but but this yeah. is especially true. Like the difficult the the difficult aspects of this past year are especially true for yeah. many of the students in your class. And and tell me why that is. Well, I like to teach with social issues. I like to incorporate that into the into the curriculum. And I feel that it doesn't matter their age. And these these children were grades two and three. Um, so wow. ranging in age from like seven to nine years old. But um, I feel that, yes, it's the way you promote or the way that you explain 
um, different social justice issues. But I feel like they it's important for them to know what's going on in this world. So they we, we really we we studied and we learned a lot about all of these different events. And um, they they were very perceptive. They took it to heart. They asked, why is this happening? Why are people responding to others in this manner? And we related it back to bullying. We related it back to like everyday things that they could witness within their own communities. And so that's, that's how I find that teaching um, this generation of kids um, really appeals to them. And that's how they absorb material quicker. And that's how they, they're able to even make a difference in their community because they make it relatable. And, and I and I understand that it's even more relatable for some of the students because some of your students are refugees from yes. uh, from what I understand Nigeria, yeah. Ethiopia, and Ukraine. Yep. Yes. Yes. And like they came at the start of this new year, not this not the new school year, but this new year, and um, they 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 were foreigners to the country. So getting them to even become inclusive within our classroom, you know, they they were. It's a challenge for anyone if you walk into a new space, like trying to feel included, right? So um, I always say, like, with the students, and this goes for even my past classrooms as well, you're, this is a safe, positive, inclusive space. So any worries that you have, you can leave them at the door. And you know that once you step foot into this classroom, you are welcomed, you are accepted, you are loved, and we are a classroom family. So just promoting that within my classroom is 100% key with how I teach my curriculum. My heart is exploding. <laughs> I just Thank love. You. I just love that. I, I understand that that you're you're a strong believer in the phrase "walk a mile in someone else's shoes." How exactly. how did that play into what you did with your students well, with these speakers? Well, even just like witnessing, like when you walk down uh, like a street, walk in downtown Toronto or anywhere, wherever you may be, you never know what's going on in someone's life. You never know what's going on behind closed doors. So. You want to always approach everybody with kindness, with give them your best foot forward, right? So mm -hmm. that's something that kind of relates to that phrase. And being a very passionate or avid uh, basketball fan and shoe fanatic, um, I grew when I was growing up. I loved the movie Like Mike, and um, if anybody knows, it's um, mm -hmm. it's a little boy who's in an orphanage, and he gets a pair of shoes, and he thinks it's the shoes that make him who he becomes. And in reality, it has nothing to do with the shoes. It's who he is once he steps foot in those shoes. That actually is what impacts and alters the course of his life. And that's what I wanted to instill and implement within these children is that you are powerful. You are the one. It's not, it's not what you wear. It's not the out, even how you look. It's not your outward appearance. It's what who you are inside, your character, um, your goals, everything about that, your heart that makes you who you are. And that's how you should go and carry out and proceed in this world. Stephanie L, you are amazing. Your heart is amazing. Thank you so much. Stephanie L goes Thank by you. teaching the six online with some crowdfunding help and some stealthy measuring of each student's shoe size. She was able to purchase ah, 22, <laughs> 22 pairs yes, of the highly yes. coveted shoes at $75 a pair. We got to end it there, Stephanie. Uh, have an awesome weekend. Thanks so much for sharing this Thank great story so with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This this marks the end of the week for the Evan Solomon Show. Uh, I've been filling in. I'm Tamara Cherry. I, I want to send a huge thanks to our producer, Sam, to our technical producer, Chris. It's been awesome. I will be back in this chair in a couple weeks. But until then, thanks for listening and have an awesome day.